Welcome to Envision Pass Podcast, preparing social workers for the licensing exam, providing critical insight, tips, and strategies to empower you to achieve your goal, your licensure. Please welcome your host, Tanisha Delphel. Hi, everyone. Once again, thank you for joining in on today's podcast, Demystifying the NASW Code of Ethics, part two of a four-part series. In this podcast, we will be reviewing social workers' ethical responsibilities to clients. And I must say that this section is so extensive that we decided to divide it into two parts, part A and B. I will be reviewing part A and Abraham Mora will be reviewing Part B. Now, I'm really excited to continue this series as I believe that familiarizing yourself with the Code of Ethics can bring you closer to passing the ASWB exam. I will pass. I am prepared. I will never give up. Visualize your future with, with your, your license. license. Now, let's first begin by reviewing Standard 1.01, Commitment to Clients. Social workers' primary responsibility is to promote the well-being of clients. In general, clients' interests are primary. However, social workers' responsibility to the larger society or specific legal obligations may on limited occasions supersede the loyalty owed clients, and clients should be so advised. Examples include when a social worker is required by law to report that a client has abused a child or has threatened to harm self or others. So during the engagement stage of the helping process, we establish relationship with our clients, right, to build trust and so that they can feel safe um, to open up to us. But there are times when we may encounter conflict between clients' interests and social workers' responsibility to the larger society or to even uphold specific legal requirements. So let's just say if the client tells you or begs you to not disclose, for instance, harm done to a vulnerable individual, such as a child, elderly, or gravely disabled persons, um, we have an obligation to protect those individuals. And this is why from the outset of treatment, social workers must inform the clients of the exceptions to confidentiality, which we will further discuss later on. Now let's move on to standard 1.02, self-determination. Social workers respect and promote the rights of clients to self-determination and assist clients in their efforts to identify and clarify their goals. Social workers may limit clients' rights to self-determination when in the social worker's professional judgment, clients' actions or potential actions pose a serious, foreseeable, and imminent risk to themselves or others. So what this is basically stating is respecting our clients' rights to make their own decisions and the right to refuse treatment or even medication. Now, I want you to keep in mind that not every client is capable of making independent choices. And as stated, autonomy is usually limited only when the client, uh, let's just say, for example, is actually threatening suicide or harm to others. So the client may protest about being hospitalized, but in this situation, we have to consider the safety of the client and of the society at large. So as long as the client is capable of making informed choices, we have the duty to respect their autonomy. So another thing to keep in mind is that we can't force our clients to take medication or to not live on the streets if they don't want to, or we can't tell our clients to divorce their spouse or leave their partner. 
when we do this, we're basically misjudging the power our clients have by telling them what to do. So we must respect our client's decision as long as they're capable of making informed choices. I think another interesting yet complicating thing to think about, Abraham, when it comes to self-determination is a client's cultural values as it may not emphasize autonomy as Western culture do. This is why it's best to consider a client's culture when answering questions as some culture may need input from the family, elders, or religious leaders before agreeing to any form of treatment. So overall, as social workers, we must definitely avoid imposing our own beliefs and values on clients or interfere with the client's rights to choose because of our views of what we think is best for them. Now let's review standard 1.03, informed consent. A. Social workers should provide services to clients only in the context of a professional relationship based, when appropriate, on valid informed consent. Social workers should use clear and understandable language to inform clients of the purpose of the services, risk related to the services, limits the services because of the requirements of a third-party pair, relevant cost, reasonable alternatives, clients' rights to refuse or withdraw consent, and the time frame covered by the and the time frame covered by the consent. Social workers should provide clients with an opportunity to ask questions. So I think one of the crucial part of the social work practice is ensuring that we explain to our clients in a clear and comprehensive manner the purpose, benefits, and rights of treatment or services, and so on, as mentioned in the Code of Ethics, and giving them the option to decide whether or not they want to participate in treatment. And this takes us back to Standard 1.02, promoting the client's right to self-determination. Now, if you think about it, this is basically the prerequisite for treatment. We can't move forward without the client or the client's legal guardian signing that dotted line. We can also use this opportunity to discuss the client's rights to access their records and, as mentioned, discussing their rights to refuse treatment and the implication of refusing treatment, especially for involuntary or mandated clients, which we'll discuss in Section 1.03D. Now, keep in mind that this process of informed consent does not just occur in one session. This is ongoing as changes can be made to either uh, the agreement of the client. Um, The client may switch from individual to couples therapy and so on. Now, when it comes to minors, the level of consent varies by state statute. But as you know, the ASWB exam does not test you on state laws. So though legally, children are considered incapable of making informed choices, ethically, they should be involved in the decision-making process and give assent to therapy. And assent basically means that the child is involved in the decision about therapy or other services and agree to engage. Now let's move on to 1.03b. An instance when clients are not literate or have difficulty understanding the primary language used in the practice, social workers should take steps to ensure clients' comprehension. This may include providing clients with a detailed verbal explanation or arranging for a qualified interpreter or translator when possible. 
So we must take reasonable steps to ensure the client's understanding if the client is not literate by having an oral discussion about the consent and providing a detailed explanation. So if the social worker and the client do not share the same language and the client is having difficulty understanding, the social worker must obtain a qualified interpreter or translator. So a client who nods their head in agreement or because they make a decision, it does not mean that they fully understand. Now, what if clients say, I understand, and later on accuses you of deception? Now, to avoid this, as social workers, we must take reasonable steps, as said in the Code of Ethics, to ensure the client's understanding. Now, let's move on to C. In instances when clients lack the capacity to provide informed consent, social workers should protect clients' interests by seeking permission from an appropriate third party, informing clients consistent with the client's level of understanding. In such instances, social workers should seek to ensure that third party acts in a manner consistent with the client's wishes and interests. Social workers should take reasonable steps to enhance such client's ability to give informed consent. So by capacity, we're referring to a client's mental ability to understand the nature and effect of a decision. It is our responsibility as social workers to determine the client capacity to make a decision, and we can use a mental status examination to do so. So if the client is determined to, let's just say, have diminished making capacity, the social worker should obtain consent from an individual who is legally authorized to act on behalf of the client. And the social worker should also consider whether lack of capacity is temporary or permanent. So let's just say a client who attends treatment intoxicated, that client may be asked to return when he or she is sober to provide informed consent, or if the client is in withdrawal or hospitalized from drug overdose, the client might at some point regain their ability to provide informed consent. So in this case, there will not be a need for a third party acting on the client's behalf. Now, if a client is presented to the emergency room unconscious, the doctor might presume consent and administer treatment. And in this case, protection against harm supersedes the obligation to obtain informed consent. So I want for you to keep this in mind as well. Also, if the client is aware in advance that their capacity to consent may be affected in the future, an advanced directive, also known as living will, can be used to determine their treatment decision. Let's move on to D. In instances when clients are receiving services involuntarily, social workers should provide information about the nature and extent of services and about the extent of clients' rights to refuse service. So involuntary or mandated clients may present with various feelings of anger, frustration, guilt, as you know, due to being subjected to some level of coercion from either the court or their loved ones, their employer, um, from public assistance programs to receive treatment. Now, we have to acknowledge that they are not receiving services out of their own free will or not on a voluntary basis. So in terms of consent, social workers are still obligated to provide explanation about the services, benefits, and risk and allow clients to discuss their concerns. Now, the question is, what if the client rejects services? Well, in this case, we must discuss the possible consequences of refusing treatment or services. Now, let's move on to letter E and F, which in this section discuss the use of 
technology. Social workers should discuss with clients the social workers' policies concerning the use of technology in the provision of professional services. So this is pretty much self-explanatory. And F, social workers who use technology to provide social work services should obtain informed consent from the individuals using these services during the initial screening or interview and prior to initiating services. Social workers should assess clients' capacity to provide informed consent and when using technology to communicate, verify the identity and location of clients. So informed consent should be obtained from clients when using any form of technology to obtain services, discussing the risk and limitation associated with such services while ensuring the client's mental capacity and understanding. And also, it's important to consider what procedures that uh, you may follow if technology failure were to occur partway through an online session with a client. So you should also discuss with a client uh, the possibility of technology failures. G, social workers who use technology to provide social work services should assess the client's suitability and capacity for electronic and remote services. Social workers should consider the client's intellectual, emotional, and physical ability to use technology to receive services and the client's ability to understand potential benefits, risk, and limitation of such services. If clients do not wish to use services provided through technology, social workers should help them identify alternate methods of services. So we know that young children and adults who suffer from serious mental illness or elderly who suffer from dementia are unable to provide informed consent. Therefore, we must assess the client's ability to reason and make informed choices. Now, I agree that it may be difficult to know if a client is fully capable of providing consent or if the client fully understands the informed consent when services is provided online compared to when we meet them in person. However, it is our obligation to ensure that clients are mentally capable of providing consent, assessing their intellectual, emotional, and physical ability to use technology before providing therapy or any form of services. Now let's move on to letter H. Social workers should obtain clients' informed consent before making audio or video recording of clients or permitting observation of service provision by a third party. So sometimes we may use audio or videotape for supervision purposes, research purposes, teaching purposes, or other professional or clinical purposes. And what this is saying is that before making video or other recording or permitting observation of service provision by a third party, informed consent should be obtained from the client. Now let's move down to letter I. Social workers should obtain client consent before conducting an electronic search on the client Exceptions may arise when the search is for purposes of protecting the client or other people from serious foreseeable and imminent harm or for other compelling professional reasons. So this too is self-explanatory. We should not, behind our client's back, conduct electronic search on our clients. If we want to look up any information regarding our clients, it is best to obtain the client's permission before doing so. I will pass. I am prepared. I will never give up. Visualize your future with With your license. license. Now let's move down to standard 1.04 competence. 
Social workers should provide services and represent themselves as competent only within the boundaries of their education, training, license, certification, consultation received, supervised experience, or other relevant professional experience. So what this is saying is that we should recognize the limits of our competence and anything outside of our area of expertise, for instance, a client complaining about severe headaches, back pain, etc., we must make a referral to a more appropriate professional. B, social workers should provide services in substantive areas or use intervention techniques or approaches that are new to them only after engaging in appropriate study, training, consultation, and supervision from people who are competent in those interventions or techniques. So though we may have the knowledge and skills required to work in the area for a profession, we must be knowledgeable and trained in interventions or approaches being used. And this is where we can expand our competence through continued education in order to provide or use uh, new approaches and intervention as well as to extend um, our expertise. C. When generally recognized standards do not exist with respect to an emerging area of practice, social workers should exercise careful judgment and take reasonable steps, including appropriate education, research, training, consultation, and supervision, to ensure the competence of their work and to protect clients from harm. At all times, whatever we do, we have to think about our clients' best interests and how we can protect our clients. So if there's something outside of our area of expertise that we're uncertain of, it's best to seek supervision, get education, trainings, or seek consultation to ensure that we are competent enough to provide those services or provide the work. So letters D and E covers the use of technology. Social workers who use technology in the provision of social work services should ensure that they have the necessary knowledge and skills to provide such services in a competent manner. This includes an understanding of the special communication challenges when using technology and the ability to implement strategies to address these challenges. And letter E is also self-explanatory. Social workers who use technology in providing social work services should comply with the laws governing technology and social work practice in the jurisdiction in which they're regulated and located and as applicable in the jurisdiction in which the client is located. Visualize passing the exam. Visualize your future with your license. Now let's move on to standard 1.05, cultural awareness and social diversity. A, social workers should understand culture and its function in human behavior in society, recognizing the strengths that exist in all cultures. So as social workers, we must acknowledge the significance of culture in our practice and recognizing the diversity among cultures and their strengths. Now, a person of a certain culture may not seek treatment due to stereotypical views of mental illness. Therefore, often it is kept as a secret due to shame or humiliation to be seen as weak. Consider this Chinese concept, saving face, right? So what it means is that to avoid hum- being humiliated or embarrassed, um, one might tend to keep secrets uh, or hide uh, mental illness from the public. We should also consider that every culture sees mental illness differently. What is behaviorally appropriate or considered an accepted practice in one culture may not be for the other. 
Now, on the exam, we may need to acknowledge the client's feelings or provide psychoeducation to the client about a specific mental illness based on symptoms identified, or we may need to assist the client in disclosing to their family. Remember, this is based on how the case scenario is presented. And it is important that we have competence in culturally sensitivities and differences amongst people. B. Social workers should have a knowledge base of their clients' cultures and be able to demonstrate competence in the provision of services that are sensitive to clients' cultures and to differences amongst people and cultural groups. So though we may be of a different culture from our clients, it is important that we obtain knowledge and understanding of our clients' ethnic and cultural identities, their values, beliefs, and differences. And C. Social workers should obtain education about and seek to understand the nature of social diversity and oppression with respect to race, ethnicity, national origin, color, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity or expression, age, marital status, political belief, religion, immigration status, and mental or physical ability. So this standard is suggesting for social workers to obtain education that is related to various forms of diversity, such as religion, sexual orientation, culture, gender, and so on. And this might seem a lot to know, but that is why ongoing trainings are so important. And D, social workers who provide electronic social work services should be aware of cultural and socioeconomic differences among clients and how they may use electronic technology. Social workers should assess cultural, environmental, economic, mental, or physical ability, linguistic, and other issues that may affect the delivery or use of these services. If we're using this mode of communication to provide services, we have to consider clients' cultural and socioeconomic differences. Consider if the client is capable of using a computer or having the appropriate phone for video sessions and so on. Always keep these things in mind when deciding to use technology. I will pass. I am prepared. I will never give up. Visualize your future with your license. Now let's move on to standard 1.06, Conflicts of Interest. Now, I won't be reviewing this section in its entirety, but I will give an overall review of this entire section from A to H. Now, without a doubt, there is potential for conflicts of interest that may affect the ability of social workers to exercise professional discretion and unbiased judgment. This standard, this section specifically, cautions social workers against entering dual relationships or any situation where conflict of interest arise. So as social workers, we have a responsibility to ensure that our clients' best interests remain a priority at all times, which is why it is best to assess for any potential conflict of interest from when we first engage with our clients. Of course, we cannot predict future conflict of interest, but we can make the effort to avoid it once we become aware of it. Now, there are also cases that social workers would need to refer where it is not possible to manage the conflict of interest. And uh, seeking supervision is also helpful when conflict of interest arise and you're not certain as far as how to handle that situation. 
In cases where a dual relationship is unavoidable, we must set clear and appropriate boundaries. So for example, social workers who practice in rural or small communities or with specific cultural groups, um, there are potential for conflict of interest there. I also want you to consider cases where social workers play two separate roles, such as if a couple decides to get a divorce and is called to testify in court. This is also considered a conflict of interest because a social worker is now playing two roles. So in this case, the social workers must clearly explain the roles of being a therapist and as their potential or as a potential witness. And finally, social workers must avoid engaging in personal and non-related relationship or conversation with clients over the phone, text messaging, online chat, video calls, or on social media. The use of social media for personal or professional purpose can cause conflict of interest and harm to clients. Therefore, it's very important that social workers avoid accepting clients as their friends on social networking sites and be mindful of what they post on social media, especially if their page is not private. Okay, now we're down to standard 1.07, privacy and confidentiality. Letter A, social workers should respect clients' rights to privacy. Social workers should not solicit private information from or about clients except for compelling professional reasons. Once private information is shared, standards of confidentiality apply. So maintaining a client's fundamental rights to privacy and confidentiality is central to the therapeutic social worker-client relationship, and I cannot stress that enough. As social workers, we are legally and ethically responsible for protecting each client's privacy. Now, we must only share and disclose clients' information only for purposes that are consistent with our professional responsibilities in accordance with legislation, um, professional standards, and employer policy. B, social workers may disclose confidential information when appropriate with valid consent from a client or person legally authorized to consent on behalf of a client. So before disclosing information about a client to someone else, it is important to obtain consent from the client or a legally authorized person. If you release information about your client without their consent and the client finds out, you may lose their trust and it also goes against the code of ethics. C. Social workers should protect the confidentiality of all information obtained in the course of professional service, except for compelling professional reasons. The general exception that social workers will keep information confidential does not apply when disclosure is necessary to prevent serious, foreseeable, and imminent harm to a client or others. In all instances, the social workers should disclose the least amount of confidential information necessary to achieve the desired purpose, only information that is directly relevant to the purpose for which the disclosure is made should be revealed. So as mentioned, there are exceptions to confidentiality. And the first one is, as mandated reporters, it is our duty to report to the Child Protective Services if we suspect child abuse and neglect, as well as to adult protective agency if there's suspicion of or evidence of abuse and neglect 
of elderly or dependent individuals. The other exception is if subpoenaed, you may need to cooperate with the court in either testifying or releasing client's files. The third exception is that you have a duty to warn if a client is in danger to self or others, and you can consider the Tarasov law that pertains to duty to warn. As social workers, we will need to take steps to ensure our client's safety. Aside from these circumstances, you must keep your client information confidential. Now let's move on to letter D. Social workers should inform clients to the extent possible about the disclosure of confidential information and the potential consequences when feasible before the disclosure is made. This applies whether social workers disclose confidential information on the basis of a legal requirement or client's consent. So as mentioned before, as social workers, we're mandated to report any suspicion of harm to self or others, and we are required to inform our clients of such disclosure before it is made, even if the client begs the social worker not to make a report. Letter E. Social workers should discuss with clients and other interested parties the nature of confidentiality and limitations of clients' rights to confidentiality. Social workers should review with clients circumstances where confidential information may be requested and where disclosure of confidential information may be legally required. This discussion should occur as soon as possible in the social worker-client relationship and as needed throughout the course of the relationship. So from the beginning of treatment, clients should be informed of confidentiality policy, and these may include how their information will be shared with third parties, such as an insurance company, the employer, uh, so EAP staff, EAP meaning Employee Assistant Program, Utilization Review Personal, and so on. And clients should also be informed of the laws, ethical standards relating to confidentiality, mandatory reporting laws, Also, uh, what social workers will do to ensure that client's information is protected, such as um, record storage. Letter F. When social workers provide counseling services to clients, couples, or groups, social workers should seek agreement among the parties involved concerning each individual's rights to confidentiality and obligation to preserve the confidentiality of information shared by others. This agreement should include whether confidential information may be exchanged in person or electronically among clients or with others outside of formal counseling sessions. Social workers should inform participants in family, couples, or group counseling that social workers cannot guarantee that all participants will honor such agreements. Now, it is important that we inform our clients, whether families, couples, or groups, that we cannot guarantee that other participants will maintain confidentiality. So as social workers, we have no control over what occurs outside of the therapeutic settings when it comes to clients sharing their information with others. However, we are obligated to reinforce the importance of confidentiality to our clients. Now let's move on to G. Social workers should inform clients involved in family, couples, marital, or group counseling of the social workers, employers, and agencies' policy concerning the social workers' disclosure of confidential information among the parties involved in the counseling. 
So when working with couples, families, or if you're conducting marital counseling, the term family secret should not be new to you. This is when, for instance, one member of the family or a partner may share a secret to you in confidence outside of therapy. And to avoid this from occurring, it is best that social workers include the no secret policy in the informed consent and present it to the clients at the beginning of therapy. So informing the clients that they will not meet with them outside of the session and that any personal issues must be discussed inside of the session. The social worker can also provide the option for referral if the client needs individual counseling session. But if the social worker decides to, let's just say, meet with uh, the client individually, before doing that, all parties within that group, whether couples or family, must agree. Now, I want for you to note that what is discussed with the client during the individual session must not be disclosed or shared with the family or partner. This includes the client's records. So this information is separate from the family and couple session. Now, when it comes to a minor, confidentiality can be complex. There are times when the social worker may need to meet with the child individually, separate from the family session. And for this reason, the social worker need to discuss how the child's confidentiality will be handled. So not everything that is disclosed by the child should be shared with the family or parents. Um, of course, with the exceptions, such as if the child disclosed about hurting themselves or others. Now, keep in mind that parents, including those that have legal custody of their child, do have rights to access their child's records. Unless the child is emancipated or under the law considered a mature minor, or if the social worker believes that accessing the child's records can pose harm, the social worker can refuse to provide uh, the child's record to the parent or legal guardian. Now, in group settings, social workers should avoid speaking with a group member outside of the group about other members. Instead, it's best to encourage the group member to discuss their concerns within the group. Now, the same with family and couples counseling sessions. The social worker must explain confidentiality policy and the handling of confidential information. Now, let's go down to letter H. Social workers should not disclose confidential information to third-party payers unless clients have authorized such disclosure, and this is also pretty much self-explanatory. Before disclosing clients' information, social workers must obtain the client's consent and discuss the purpose of disclosing their information. So, for instance, in the case of the insurance company, information may be required to determine the client's eligibility so when you're obtaining client's consent for a third party, such as an insurance company, it is best to inform the client of the reason for that disclosure, which it could be the fact that it is required to determine their eligibility. Letter I is also self-explanatory. Social workers should not discuss confidential information electronically or in person in any setting unless privacy can be ensured. Social workers should not discuss confidential information in public or semi-public areas such as hallways, waiting rooms, elevators, and restaurants. So avoid disclosing information in any public area. J. Social workers should protect the confidentiality of clients during legal proceedings to the extent permitted by law. 
when a court of law or other legally authorized body orders social workers to disclose confidential or privileged information without a client's consent, and such disclosure could cause harm to the client, social workers should request that the court withdraw the order or limit the order as narrowly as possible or maintain the records under seal, unavailable for public inspection. So there are times when social workers may be asked to disclose information during legal proceedings, right? Whether due to uh, divorce proceeding, um, custody dispute, criminal cases, malpractice cases, and so on. And in these cases, the social worker should attempt to protect the client's confidentiality. Now, if a subpoena is received, the social worker must not ignore it. Instead, the social worker should enforce the client's privilege to protect the client's information. Now, the client has the right to waive the privilege if they desire their information to be disclosed. Now, what if the client does not want to give consent or if the social worker believes that um, the subpoena is inappropriate? In this case, the social worker can advise the client to have his or her attorney file a motion to quash the subpoena. Now, with the client's written consent, the social worker can speak to the client's attorney, uh, describe the content of the record that has been subpoenaed, and also share reasons for protecting the record. So, for example, a reason could be the information is irrelevant to the proceedings or the information is protected as privileged communication, etc., And as mentioned in the Code of Ethics, a social worker may also request to limit the disclosure to only specific information or maintain the records under seal unavailable for public inspection. Thank you so much for your time. Now tune in for Part B, where Abraham Mora will continue the section of social workers' ethical responsibilities to clients. Thank you for listening to the Envision Pass podcast with Tanisha Delph. The podcast designed to assist you through your journey towards passing the licensing exam. 